Welcome to another episode of Should You Take That Case with your host, Lisa Wade, your friendly neighborhood legal nurse consultant, owner of Wade Nurse Consultants, and creator of our private LinkedIn community, the Attorney Medical Record Resource Group. That is where we get all of our stellar attorney guests. The goal of our show is to be a resource for legal professionals who pursue medical cases by sharing their experience and insights as defense or as plaintiff attorneys. You can catch prior episodes at www.wadenurseconsultants.com slash blog on LinkedIn and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now here's the host of Should You Take That Case, Lisa Wade. Hi there. Good afternoon. Welcome to another Medical Monday and another episode of our show, Should You Take That Case, where we take the opportunity to talk to and interview an attorney in the field of medical cases, personal injury, defense, plaintiffs, whoever shows up, anybody that deals with medical cases and uh, would like to share their experiences with us. I am your host, Lisa Wade. I'm a legal nurse consultant and owner of Wade Nurse Consultants. I'm also the creator of our private LinkedIn community, Attorney Medical Record Resource Group. And that's where we get our wonderful pool of attorney guests. And today we have a wonderful guest right out of California, William Newkirk, better known as Bill Newkirk, and we're going to get to him in just a moment. First, we're going to peek over into the comments and see if there's anybody visiting live today. If you are, welcome. If you're catching the replay, welcome again. If you are an attorney or part of our attorney medical record resource group, just put an A in that comment box so we can say hello, see you, and, uh, and welcome you here today. If you are a part of Women Owned Law, another wonderful group I'm a part of, put a W in that chat so we can see you and say hello. If you're out there, Lori Jubilier, hello if you are catching us today that's that was our first guest our first guest ever march the first and thank you again Lauren. now let's get over and introduce our guest today that is going to be there it is there you go <laughs> bill newkirk has been practicing for 44 years 38 of them have been as plaintiff's medical malpractice specialist. After graduating from UCLA with a minor sequence in organic chemistry, he went to work as a pharmaceutical detail representative for Park Davis and then left to attend Southwestern University Law School. He then started his legal career as an insurance defense attorney, where he handled both major personal injury claims and medical malpractice defense work, and was assigned to try his first case 
within four months of starting practice. Within the first year, he had tried four cases to verdict, all defense wins. Four years later, he was called upon by a former adversary to manage cases previously handled by an associate who became a paid consultant to the California Medical Board and began his law career in plaintiff's medical malpractice litigation and elder abuse claims. And now I'm going to bring out Bill Lukirk. There, and I'm going to unmute you too. <laughs> Hi, Bill. Welcome. Ooh, good afternoon to all of you. Good afternoon, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad to California. This you're our second guest from California and in like four weeks. So, you know, it, it's not I thank you for, for adhering to the, the time difference. I appreciate you you being here under under those circumstances. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bill, I know you're gonna get into talking to us about your medical cases that you you dealt with, and, and we want to hear all about that. But first, we want to hear mostly about you, how you got to be an attorney, what's good about it, what's good about this field, and anything else you want to share with us about you. <laughs> well, thank you pretty much. You know, it's kind of an interesting story, hopefully, that got me into the practice of law, I said in my introduction information that I gave to you, Lisa, that I graduated with a minor sequence from UCLA in organic chemistry. And that's because I really wanted to be a doctor. Well, my mother was a nurse and <clears throat> medicine really was something that I paid a lot of attention to as a kid growing up that expected that I was just simply going to go to college and become a physician. When I got to college, I, I found that the coursework in organic chemistry at UCLA was not something for everybody, particularly for me, because I have chromatic indifference. I'm not entirely colorblind, but there are a lot of pastel hues that I can't distinguish one from another. And in organic chemistry, that's something that is a critical talent you need to be able to make distinctions in colors, because as you probably recall, phenolphthalein, which is one of the agents used, a reagent used to t tell you when there is a change in pH or change in other features of compounds, it changes to pink when the pH changes past neutral. That becomes very important to be able to make that distinction when I was, I'm sure they have an app for that now. <laughs> that they do. When I, when I was, when I was in the organic labs, I'd say to the kids next to me, all of whom were very competitive about trying to get into medical school, I'd say, "Hey, has this changed to pink yet?" And of course, <clears throat> they knew that if I got it right, that meant that I was more competition for them. So, no, not quite. I don't think you have it quite yet. Just about another drop or two and you'll be there. So <clears throat> my grades in organic chemistry weren't ter terribly great. In fact, I was, I was lucky to 
be able to stay in the class for some period of time, but I graduated with a minor sequence. My major sequence was in history, where I found it not at all difficult to get along day to day and get, get a four point. So my overall grade point average when I graduated was enough to be able to to look good on application for law school exams, but but <clears throat> my chemistry was pathetic. So after after graduating and serving my time in the military, I came out <clears throat> and went to work for Park Davis, a major pharmaceutical company selling selling drugs. I was the detail man before they made the sage decision to change their sales force from males looking like me to females who are a great deal more attractive for the physicians to talk to than people like me. So the whole force really was changing. But what took me to law school was one one particular drug that we were detailing. What detailing a drug was all about was first learning about the drug. So my chemistry background made it easy for me to understand the the drugs and the features of the drugs that make them marketable. We had a steroid, corticosteroid pill form, an oral form that Park Davis was trying to promote. It was our job to go around and tell the doctors about what a great product it was and how it competed particularly on a price basis against the two leading drugs that are still on the market that are the corticosteroids, the decadron, and, and I've forgotten what the other one is by now, but it was decadron. Decadron is probably the biggest seller of all of them. To, to drive home the point that the product was competitive for patients and for physicians on a, on a cost basis, we had a golf ball that at the time was the best ball, on, new ball on the market that was stamped with the name of the drug on the front of it. Problem is they only gave us, I think for the 1,700 doctors that I was expected to call on in my district, they gave me three dozen golf balls. <laughs> and of course, everybody knows most doctors golf, so it would be it would be a particularly welcome uh, freebie giveaway to give the doctor a golf ball. But if they weren't writing steroids, they weren't. It wasn't going to do me any good. I wasn't going to win the sales contest. So I did, did my research. I found out who was writing steroids, who was who was writing the most steroids. Checked with all the pharmacists. My my uh, on my route. And found out who were the golfers, and find out when they when they teed off. And the one last guy that I saved three golf balls for was a guy who teed off every morning at the local golf course, Rancho Golf Course in West LA. Every Wednesday morning at seven o'clock, he had a tee time that he teed off there, and he wrote steroids for everything. Probably a mistake. Probably probably malpractice. In fact, it, as it turns out, proved to be malpractice. Um, steroids are not good for some infections. All right. So he wrote steroids for it. If you had a hangnail, he wrote steroids. If you had a bone ache, he wrote steroids. If, he, if you had anything, 
hero steroids for that product. So I showed up with my last three golf balls on Tuesday afternoon and sat and waited in his office for almost two hours to have him see me. Finally, he finally came out, finally led me in, told him about the, this wonderful new drug. They had competed with Decadron and Aristocort was the other drug. And it said, this ball is, is going to save you strokes if you're a golfer, like, like our product is going to save your client costs. The pharmacy, it's significantly cheaper. That's significantly cheaper. And this ball's the best ball that's out. It's, it would happen to be the Spalding Top Flight Mall uh, that had just come out. He said, that's great. He says, I tee off tomorrow morning. As it turns out, I do golf. I tee off tomorrow morning at seven o'clock at Bradshaw. I said, oh, imagine that. What a coincidence that I, that I would show up at your office here with these three golf balls. He says, I want a dozen golf balls. And I said, wait, well, I'll bring more. This is all I have for now. I've got three balls left. I saved these for you because I had heard you. You were likely a golfer. And Kelly, when we get more, I'll bring more by. You can play with these tomorrow morning. He said, "No, no, I, I, I want, I want a dozen for, for me and for my, my foursome for tomorrow morning, tonight. So you need, I need a dozen now." I said, "Well, I, I didn't get that. I only got, I only got these three left. That's all I have." He said, "Well, you need to go get some more." I said, "Well, I will." And I'll bring. He says, "No, no, but before, before tomorrow morning." And I looked at him and I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah. He says, if you, if you can't get those balls for me, I'm not going to write Park Davis products. Oh, and, and I said, really? And he said, yeah, really? And I said, well, thank you. And he said, what are you talking about? I reached over and grabbed the golf balls out of his hand, put them back in my bag. And I said, so I'm in force with a tough decision. I've been admitted to law school. I have to let him know by the end of this week. <clears throat> so I've got until Friday. It's Tuesday. So uh, you help me make up my mind. I would far rather go to law school than make my living brown-nosing guys like you. <laughs> I'll see you someday. <laughs> and, and sure enough, my first job as lawyer turned out to be uh, <laughs> Or three years later, my first job turned out to be working as a medical malpractice insurance defense attorney. A couple of years into doing that work, a senior partner came to me and he said, Dr. West End Medical Group is being sued and here's this file and you're going to, this is one you're going to work on. I said, okay, great. I opened it up and looked at it and I said, you know, Mr. Bonnie had this, I mean, I don't think you better sign this one. <laughs> I know this doctor. <laughs> and I once upon a time told him that I'd see him in court one of these days. <laughs> oh, boy, the place. I wonder if golf game had improved. <laughs> um, Mr. Watson, did I tell him? A little more story. I didn't go into as much detail as I did for your listeners because I didn't think that he would appreciate it. But <laughs> but we did convince him that it was maybe a case he should have signed to some of the other associates instead of me. <laughs> so, 
So that's how I became a lawyer doing medical malpractice litigation. I did a lot of that with that firm. I did other work with that firm, insuring, defending insurance clients. It's a great time. Learned from some very good lawyers and then went out on my own, decided to give it a shot on my own. I mostly because I was tired of dealing with insurance people. <laughs> I just, you know, a little bit, I know that I was going to have to do it on a completely different level. And more of it oh, <laughs> and be, and be much more pleasant about it than I was even when I worked for them. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of where I came from. I learned that, you know, they, uh, they are more likely to want to pay you money if you're pleasant to them and polite and professional than if you're not. So, <laughs> you've been on, yeah, you have experience on both sides. I have both sides. All the sides, yeah. <laughs> and in California, we have something called CUMAS, which is a case name, shortened, that deals with representing the defendant for whom there is a conflict of interest between the insurance assigned lawyer and the insurance company in representing that client. That the it, under California law, insurance companies have to assign someone to represent the interests of the insured and pay their costs. And our job, our our responsibility is to pay attention to our our needs to represent just the interests of the doctor, the the defendant, and not at all the insurance company. So it's, it's an interesting position. And you have to have some experience, at least five years of experience of doing defense work before you can qualify. So I do some of that still. Excellent. It sounds like an interesting job for you, Bill. It's, it's been going on. It has been long enough that lost my hair. No. Maybe it's long enough. Maybe you'll find it again. I don't like that. <laughs> well, see, they may come up with a good snake oil at some point. <laughs> it could happen. It could happen. <laughs> well, uh, Bill, uh, well, first let me say thank you for your service. And uh, I'm glad it It sounds like you, your clients are, are lucky to have you. <laughs> the journey that you've been through, that you're here to, to help and do good work for them. Well, thank you, this guy. <clears throat> I'm glad. Well, on to those, uh, those little questions that I'm, I have about, you know, what kind of factors go into you deciding whether you should take those cases, those medical cases that come across your desk, or if, you know, if they're you know, not worth taking for, for you or your client. So for me, in the medical cases that I take a look at that are are called in, I have to believe, first of all, that it's going to have a value that is significant, Uh, not just the, the, you know, the the doctor, it it wasn't nice to me or the the needle wasn't, wasn't sharp enough or the bedpan was cold and, you know, you'd be surprised at how many calls we get and how frequently we get them, really petty complaints. 
there are also cases that we get called upon that are very complex. So, you know, in California, the real issue is, is this a case that is going to get over the limits on recovery from the first non-economic damage limitation legislation that was passed in the country in 1975, the MICRA Act, AB1 then, Medical Injury Compensation Reform Act, imposed a $250,000 limit on damages for non-economic damages in claims against a licensed health care provider for professional negligence. And that really is a quick summary of the statute itself. So a case that we take has to be one, first and foremost, that has a potential jury verdict value in excess of the 250 cap. If it's just if it's just non-economic damages, it's far too expensive to litigate the case. It is, if it's nothing more than pain and suffering, inconvenience, upset, it is not a basis for a significant verdict. And cases that are worth taking need to be cases that, that the medicine is understandable. Not just, not just for the jury, but for well, I should say not just for me, but for the jury. If it's if it's a complex series of medical decision making that led to the problem, the likelihood of a jury understanding that is remote. It, it gets the more complex it gets, the less interesting it is to them. The quicker they lose interest in the case, and if they've lost interest in your claim, there is no chance that you're ever going to get them to vote against their their sentiments the, in favor of the healthcare profession. So it, if it's a case that is big enough, you still need to make certain that it is not so complicated that it can't be communicated to a jury. And of course, really the next issue, the next factor in my view that's important is the number of different considerations of judgment that they have to they have to try to assess the validity of. So the more complex, the less likely it is that you're going to want to take the case. Orthopedic cases, I think, are extraordinarily complex across the board. And the other part of the problem is with orthopedic cases is that, uh, you know, they, they, the doctors start from the position that they're fixing a problem. And if the fix is a perfect they think they get sued far too often. So there are an awful lot of orthopedic physicians who are more than happy to say just about anything to convince a jury that, that it's not the fault of the orthopedic surgeon. They're, they're, very, they're very difficult cases in general. When you get into spinal orthopedics, it becomes even more complicated so those are the, the complicating factors are things that are factors that are more persuasive against against taking the case than for the case. It's kind of why that's it. Well, it sounds like you know, especially in California, if pre-screening, screening those cases and those medical records before you even you know, decide whether you should take it or shouldn't take it. That's pretty important. Do you have a special process that you use consistently or a special routine to get those cases screened 
or or get those medical yeah. records. You bet. Well, so there's really two things that that happen, and and one is really a, a consequence of what I was saying just a moment ago about making it understandable, and 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 of the number of years I've been doing this. For me, it's a great deal more. It's a great deal easier for me to be able to to immediately assess whether a case is something that is clear and simple enough, and one that presents a significant enough verdict potential that if I understand it, I think I can communicate it to the jury. It's I guess the 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 last factor is whether I can communicate it to a jury, but to be able to appreciate the nuances of the case. And literally, every time I've picked up a case getting ready for trial, and I do that dozens of times with every case before trial, for every one of those dozens of cases, uh, instances of picking up a file, I'm going to see new facts. And that's even after I do what I always do, Lisa, and that is I get the medical records reviewed, put a timeline together, at the very outset from from nurse paralegals, people who like you do case analyses and do a timeline and with a listing of things that are important considerations. I then go to the literature and I read up on that subject and I sometimes resubmit that stack of documents back to my my nursing evaluator and say, okay, so here's what I learned about this and here's your old timeline. Can we fill in some of the some of the things that we glossed over? Because I think in this case this is what I'm going to be focused on. So it, it's critical in my view. If you're going to try a med mal case, you need to know about the details of the nitty gritty. You need to know the lab values. You need to know what's normal for the for the lab that's being done. You need to know about timing of events. You need to know who did what and why. And that's not going to be something that when you're looking at the average case, <clears throat> you can do off the top of your head because you're going to be looking at more than four or 500 pages of documents. And, and sure, <clears throat> a lot of what you need to know at the outset is going to be in the admission and discharge summary, but uh, that's really where you start your analysis uh, and measure what you see in that timeline, uh, the detailed timeline against what the doctors have said. 95% of the time, I promise you're going to find there are odds. There's some variances because uh, they're looking at it after the fact. Not as a not as a dynamic that's going on at the moment in the in the nursing notes or the doctor's progress notes don't necessarily tell you all the things that you need to know. That's true. That's true. Yeah, and it sounds like you find it helpful to have you know more than one set of eyes on. Absolutely. Yes. That's good. And what? And but it sounds like you are. A, yourself for a little bit but it was not interesting how you find what you find difficult or frustrating or annoying about those medical records yes yeah to me well 
in California and really in, I think now, seven Western states, Washington, Oregon, California, Texas, Arizona, Hawaii, I've forgotten where else. We have Kaiser, Kaiser Foundation Healthcare Plan. Kaiser Foundation Healthcare Plan is the largest single healthcare plan, HMO plan, really in the country. They have a patient base of about 35 million patients. So, in fact, it's got to be more than that by now. It's probably closer to 40 or 50 million. And their records are done in accordance with a proprietary electronic medical record process. They're just, they're just impossible to figure out. They recapitulate what the last guy said <clears throat> or the last gal said. And so if there is, for each encounter, they, they, they reprint all of what was said by the last provider. So it's like that old game of telephone we played as kids where when you whisper <clears throat> a phrase to the person to your right or left, <clears throat> what happens is that by the time it gets whispered to the next person, the next person, and the next person, all around the circle that you sit in to do that, what the last person says about what was said is so very different than what the first person initiated the circle communication with that they don't bear any resemblance whatsoever. <clears throat> and so you see a mistake made along the line by somebody who is recounting an event they don't see as important for the moment and do it incorrectly. And that then gets repeated to the next person, next provider who makes similar mistakes for similar reasons. The records are impossible to follow, and there's no way to simplify them. They also have, for most nursing functions, they have boxes that you check. So the nurses will provide on a whole layout page <clears throat> check boxes, check marks are placed in boxes for things that may or may not adequately describe the clinical picture. And by the, by the time you get done with all this, you have no idea reading those records what really went on. And it's, it, it's remarkably frustrating. It, it, part of the reason is because when the system was, was initiated, it, it, it was initiated with a whole lot of drop-downs that are on a, on a dynamic screen so that the provider can, you know, can actually click on or highlight some segment of the record they want to look at. So if, for example, they're looking at a patient who's immediately post-op, they can immediately see not only what their, you know, what the most recent x-ray shows of their abdomen, whether they've got free gas or whether they've got other problems, you can look at labs, you can see whether they've got elevated white counts, you can see if they've got other very significant clinical lab values, 
But when it's printed, when the document is printed for the lawyer to look at, you get a single page of a single screen. And then you need to try and figure them out and put them all together. And it's just, it just, it, it, there is no simple way to translate that dynamic of various pages to, to a single sheet that is a printed sheet that you're looking at. The process of putting Kaiser records together in that timeline is something that is a great deal more time consuming and expensive necessarily because of that very factor. So it makes you nuts. I mean, it just makes you nuts. And there's really no specific order. You'll even find that the labs aren't necessarily printed in chronological sequence. So they have the labs for April 27th, right next to those from May 1st, followed by those from April 19th. And it's, it's, you know, you just, it's, it's impossible that it's remarkably frustrating. And <clears throat> what I do to deal with that is I insist to the extent that I can, COVID's made some changes and all of that, of being able to have a screen present when I'm taking the deposition. I want to know what the doctors, what the doctor was looking at. So when I'm examining the witness, what other screens would you look at would be a question that I would ask. That's good. That's good. It sounds like you, you it does sound frustrating, like a, a, a wall of hieroglyphics and you have no Rosetta Stone to help you. No, they will make me the case, you bet. It's, yeah. Well, what well, of nothing's got eyes, the professional, it's helpful to have somebody that has been exactly in the situation to tell you what's happening in relation to what what shows up on those records. It, it obviously can be a world of difference between what actually and what you see on those records. That's for sure. Thank goodness that you, you, you have somebody and obviously, Lisa, one of the things that you want to do when you're trying this kind of a case is make sure you've got all of the records. And you know, that's, that's that's the very first order of business. Put, do we have them all? Uh, <clears throat> it's something, fortunately, that uh, there's a couple of folks that I used to do my, my initial nursing reviews, and they're pretty good. I don't even have to ask them, do we have all the records? They, they say, you don't have the labs from such and such a day, which is important in this case. So let's go get those. <laughs> so. it's, it's good. You, you have a team uh, or helpers and, and, and you're the ringleader. So that's the, that's good. You know what you're looking for or what's missing. Yeah. Right. And lastly, I just want to know what advice I know again, you've given a lot of advice, but any nutshell advice that you have for any, any fledgling attorneys in your position or any, anything for a, a veteran attorney that's been doing this for years, you've got something, something in a nutshell you can tell. You know, I think that I, I would, I would go with this one. If you can't figure it out in a few minutes, don't expect you're ever going to be able to explain it to a jury in a way they can figure it out ever. 
if, if it isn't simple enough for you to figure out, don't take the case. If, if, if based on your experience, you can't figure this out, <clears throat> you probably ought to pass on taking that case. Sounds like stellar advice, Bill. And I'm so glad that you were here with us today. And we're going to have time for a little Q&A if, if I scoot over here and see if we have any comments from any viewers right now. But how about this? If you're out there, start thinking of a question you have. Even if you're out there on the replay, start thinking of a question you have and enter it into the comments and we can get Bill to answer it either now or at a later time. So get those questions ready. And while you're getting your questions together to include them in a chat, it's a little time I call time for a little brief sponsor break. <laughs> so Bill so, has definitely talked about, you know, how important it is to get those cases or medical records screened beforehand and they'll help you know if you should be taking those cases making sure you have all the records that you need. Is everything included? Is that record representative of what happened with your client or is something missing? At Wade Nurse Consultants, we do medical case screenings. We look through those medical records. We summarize them in one to two page reports, written or verbal. And we help you know if you should take that case. So, in the description, it may not be in the chat right now, but if you look on the description section of this YouTube channel, you'll see a link to my calendar and you click on there and schedule a time for a medical case strategy call, 15, 20 minutes, and we'll help you know if we could be of assistance to you summarizing and translating those medical records to help you learn if you should take that case. Now, we're heading back over. See if there's any questions for, for Bill. And actually, I don't see any questions right now, Bill, but like I said, they could turn up on the replay. And I'm going to funnel them out to you. And you can have a chance to answer them. Your contact information in Pasadena, California will be inside the description box at this YouTube channel for anybody that wants to reach out and, and ask you, you know, if, if, if there's something that uh, you can do for them. <laughs> so, so that information will be in there. And I think we're going to wind up today, Bill. And once again, it's been wonderful. You're a good storyteller. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Oh, you've had a you've had, like I said, a wonderful life. And if I, you know, I'm sorry if the app for for the the your your color issue it didn't come out soon enough to help you. But it sounds like you made out pretty good. Pretty happy. I'm very happy to be to be where I am doing what I'm doing. And thank you. And and I hope maybe you'll come back again. Oh, I'd love to do that. Well, it's great. I really appreciate it. It's nice getting to know you. Thank you. You too, Lisa. Thank oh. you for being on. I mean that very much. It's oh, sort of thank you. Yeah.
And anytime anybody wants to get a hold of me and ask me some questions, I'm happy to do that too. Well, thank you again for coming, Bill. And I'm winding up, everybody. Like I said, check out the description box in this YouTube channel. You'll get all the information. You'll have Bill's contact information. You'll have my contact information, my LinkedIn profile, uh, Bill's email. And you can reach out to both of us. But we are winding down. Oh, also, just a reminder to like this channel subscribe and catch us again next week for another episode of should you take that case bye for now bye bill Thanks for watching and listening to another episode of Should You Take That Case with your host, Lisa Wade, your friendly neighborhood legal nurse consultant, owner of Wade Nurse Consultants, and creator of our private LinkedIn community, the Attorney Medical Record Resource Group. That is where we get all of our stellar attorney guests. The goal of our show is to be a resource for legal professionals who pursue medical cases by sharing their experiences and insights as defense or as plaintiff attorneys. You can catch prior episodes at www.wavenurseconsultants.com slash blog, on LinkedIn, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for subscribing to our YouTube channel and sharing this show with others. 